is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news, including anything that's new relating to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about research into the latest potential new treatments and what may be the causes for mental illness. That delivered to you with the experience of more than 20 years in private practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and trying to better educate the general public about mental illness. And this is the Wednesday, August 20th edition of Psychiatry Today. And without a doubt, even though it's been more than a week since we lost Robin Williams, that is no doubt still the number one mental health-related story. And uh, even though it's been talked and written about extensively in that time, uh, I feel compelled to devote some time on the show to this issue. Uh, This show is pre-recorded, so even though it airs for the first time on a Wednesday evening, uh, often it is recorded Uh, one or two days early, and therefore last week's show, the uh, August 13 edition, was recorded before Robin Williams took his life and before that news hit. So that's why there was no mention of it made on last week's show. But if you look at the show description uh, for the topics that I had uh, for... Last week's show, uh, what I did was I made sure to mention at the end of that description that the following week, meaning tonight's show that you're listening to now, I would talk about it. So hopefully you saw that, or if you didn't, now you get a chance to hear my take on a very, very difficult, tragic situation. Uh, Even if I didn't want to talk about it, I can't really ignore the subject because Everybody is asking me about it, friends, family, and most of all my patients. My patients are coming to the office, and that's what they want to talk about. They want to talk about the fact that Robin Williams took his own life and how he did it and what was wrong and how people get to that point. And there are patients of mine who have been there themselves and say they understand how someone could get to that point. But clearly this is an issue that has touched so many people, as he did with his incredible work during his lifetime. Uh, <clears throat> no matter what anyone says about him, no matter what I'm going to be saying about him on tonight's show, the man was a genius. He was a creative genius And uh, whether that was just doing stand-up or acting, um, 
the man really was immensely talented. And a lot of people are having a hard time wrapping their brains around the fact that someone who seemed so happy and full of life and brought so many people so much laughter for their entire life could do something like take his own life. And people uh, also tell me they're quite taken aback at how determined he was. We heard that first he tried to cut his wrists, and uh, having abandoned that method, he then hung himself with a belt. So this was a man who was intent on taking his life, not just someone who was crying out for help. He made up his mind very firmly that he was going to end it. And we don't know a lot about his history other than his bouts with substance abuse. Now, substance abuse is certainly a risk factor for suicide. There is a higher correlation of depression and suicide in people who have struggled with alcohol or drug problems. So that's one clue. And we learned a couple of days after we lost him that he had recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And there's been a lot of discussion about the links between Parkinson's disease and depression. And those two illnesses are linked. There is a higher incidence of depression in Parkinson's disease. But was his depression due to that? Or was his depression a long-standing pre-existing illness, which some media reports back up? And what connection was there to the Parkinson's disease? Was it, in fact, uh, a disability or a, a disease that would progress to great problems in his life that he couldn't face? Was that enough to send him over the edge? Uh, we probably won't ever know. My overriding feeling about the situation is if there is a lot of attention being paid now to the issue of depression and suicide, and that attention is sustained, it leads to more thinking about how to get people with depression help and how to prevent suicide, then that's a good thing. But if it's just a big spasm of attention that comes up in the wake of this incident because of how incredibly famous and much beloved he was, that eventually blows over and does not lead to any lasting changes in how people look at depression and how people think about trying to prevent suicide, then I think that's a shame. What's also a terrible shame is the attitudes of too many people who, in the wake of his taking his life, said some very ignorant and hateful things, in my opinion, and I don't mind labeling it as such, talking about how what he did was selfish or cowardly, putting down people who suffer from depression in one way or the other. Uh, all I can tell those people is in their ignorance that depression is a very serious illness 
and that it can be terminal, thus taking someone's life. Um, they've obviously never known the tremendous, horrible depths of severe depression that is inescapable for some people and unrelenting in the only way that they can see their way out of this depression is to take their life. Uh, while we might disagree with his choice, uh, we have to have compassion for the fact that he felt so bad, got so down that he saw no other way out, despite knowing how many people loved him, despite knowing he might very well leave behind incredible pain, then uh, if he still decided there was nothing else he could do, uh, again, uh, he must have been in terrible, terrible pain. The other feeling I have about all the attention his suicide is getting is that somewhere between three and four people take their life every hour, statistically, on average. And these are people who are quite anonymous and uh, would not engender all the attention uh, that uh, the passing of a major superstar in show business would get. And I can't help thinking of all the anonymous people who take their life and leave behind uh, incredible pain and suffering and guilt and leave behind a legacy of their own pain and suffering that must have led them to do such a drastic thing. And it also brings to mind when you hear the negative voices about depression and suicide, <clears throat> while certainly the situation of stigma against mental illness and treatment for it has improved greatly over the last several decades. Uh, it shows how far we have yet to go. And um, it's quite a long way indeed, um, judging by some of the reactions on social media and in the press. I mean, some of the vitriol even caused Mr. Williams' daughter to have to close her Twitter and Instagram and other social media accounts to protect herself from this very negative invective that was out there. Uh, the facts are that depression is a very serious illness. It is a physical illness, and it can be terminal, uh, just like most other physicians treat terminal illness. So do uh, we psychiatrists. And <clears throat> so hopefully, other than leaving behind a legacy of a tremendous, tremendous body of work, that entertained many, many tens of millions for decades. Uh, hopefully the legacy of Robin Williams is that somewhere, some people who struggle with depression and thought about suicide would think twice and uh, would try to get help. Uh, we really don't know if he was ever treated or not. And we also don't know that if he had been treated, whether that would have made any difference. Uh, tragically, some people commit suicide even with treatment 
Um, unfortunately, treatment is not a guarantee that it can be prevented. Uh, but <clears throat> if someone is acutely suicidal, what do you do? Uh, well, um, you call 911, you get uh, the authorities involved, you get them into the hospital where uh, hopefully they can be kept safe. Uh, I realize that's a, a drastic measure, but uh, if someone is feeling that way and they don't see any other way out and they can't promise that they would somehow prevent themselves from being able to, from uh, acting on those thoughts rather then there's really no other choice and um, so as part of saying goodbye to Mr. Williams when we come back from this next commercial break I'll review with you some important warning signs that you may be able to pick up on when someone may be suicidal. Uh, we'll have that and more on the other side of this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay with all the latest mental health-related news. And before the break, of course, uh, we were talking about the, uh, the tragic loss and the passing by suicide of Robin Williams. Here are a list of warning signs which most of the time people who eventually kill themselves show one or more of these signs before they take such action. <clears throat> now, they will often talk about wanting to kill themselves or saying that they wish they were dead. So while that type of comment isn't always a sign of immediate danger, uh, people should take that seriously when someone says that. Another sign is they are looking for a way to kill themselves, such as hoarding medicine or buying a gun. Now, does everyone who decides they want to buy a gun intend to kill themselves? No. Uh, but especially men who typically will use more violent methods to commit suicide, if they've never shown interest in guns before, uh, I would think that's a worrisome sign that now they uh, go to purchase one. Another sign is talking about a specific suicide plan. They may talk about, well, I'm 
thinking of just taking all my pills or, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, jump off this bridge or something or shoot myself. Um, again, if someone is talking that way, maybe they're serious, maybe they're not, maybe they're just crying for help. If so, fine. Take their feelings seriously. Make sure they get that help. You know, it, reviewing these signs with you brings to mind that there are some people who say things like that repeatedly over a long period of time. And there may be a tendency to treat that person like the boy who cried wolf. The problem with that is quite often people who threaten suicide so much that you become immune to those threats do sometimes eventually kill themselves. So it's kind of hard to just write it off and say, well, he or she is always saying that. I can't take it seriously anymore. Another sign is when people feel hopeless or like they have no reason to live. Uh, when someone has lost all hope for the future and don't doesn't see any reason to go on living, that's a worrisome sign, and they certainly are at risk for taking their life. Someone who is feeling trapped or desperate or needing to escape from an intolerable situation. Maybe it's financial, something like that, for example, or <clears throat> something to do with your work or relationships. But when someone is in that situation, they feel desperate, they feel trapped, and they see no other way to escape from an intolerable situation, but to end that burden by taking their life. Or maybe they have the feeling of being a burden to others. That is another warning sign that someone may be thinking of taking their life. Add to all this that we're talking about terrible humiliation. That's another possible warning sign. Uh, sometimes people can't tolerate very, very public and severe humiliation. Uh, this brings to mind the young college student who was outed as gay by his roommate, posted a video of, of him with another man on the Internet and uh, jumped to his death from the George Washington Bridge. Now, when a person is having intense anxiety and or panic attacks, you combine that with depression, and that is a recipe for suicide. <clears throat> Someone who's extremely and severely depressed, if they also have this type of anxiety and severe panic attacks, it becomes unbearable. And again, the only way they see out is to take their life. Of course, one of the most obvious signs of depression in general is losing interest in things or losing the ability to experience pleasure. And that really is at the core of how we diagnose depression, that symptom right there. Uh, so since anyone who suffers from clinical depression 
ultimately may be at risk for suicide. That certainly is considered a warning sign, as is insomnia. Uh, insomnia is a common symptom of depression, and again, any symptom of depression should be thought of as potentially a warning sign for suicide. And going along with that, when someone is socially isolated and withdrawn from friends, family, and others, uh, again, a typical sign of depression and therefore a potential warning sign for suicide. <clears throat> if someone is acting irritable or agitated, and this is quite uncharacteristic for them, <clears throat> um, of course, any one of these signs by itself doesn't necessarily indicate risk for suicide, unless you're talking about the signs where people are saying, well, I'm going to kill myself and this is how I'm going to do it. But a lot of these other things, the feelings of anxiety, loss of pleasure, trouble sleeping, humiliation, um, irritability and agitation, <clears throat> taken in context of someone who is already depressed, these definitely are additional warning signs. And if someone is showing rage or talking about seeking revenge for being victimized or rejected, whether or not the situations the person describes seem real, this is actually, I think, a warning sign for murder-suicide. All these cases where people will take someone else's life and then immediately take theirs. How do you understand these incidents? Well, uh, typically there is some sort of perceived slight or injustice or victimization or humiliation, whether real or imagined. And this person says, well, uh, I can't stand to live with it, but I'm going to take so-and-so who did wrong to me with me. And uh, unfortunately, we hear about all too many of situations like this. Now, it is often said that you should not be afraid to bring up the subject of suicide with someone you suspect uh, may be thinking along those lines, and that's very true. You should not be afraid to bring it up. <clears throat> Bringing it up will not make it more likely that that person will act out violently against themselves. In fact, it is the opposite. It will be a relief for that person to be able to speak about their feelings to someone. <clears throat> and this is an opportunity to encourage them to get help. And, um, you know, there is help available, um, therapy, counseling, medication. And you may think this sounds very drastic, but I'm going to mention it anyway. ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is still practiced. It is not used very often. Uh, it is only used for severe chronic depression that does not respond to multiple trials of medications. It is literally when all else fails. But there are rare situations where in a psychiatric emergency, that is 
when someone either has already made an attempt on their life and is continuing to try to hurt themselves or um, someone is uh, on the brink of such an attempt. Uh, we would consider that a psychiatric emergency and uh, therefore justification for doing ECT treatments on an emergent basis. Can this, I know this must seem shocking to a lot of people, but it's comparable to other things that doctors do with electricity to parts of the body. Just think about the heart. If the heart is defibrillating and someone is going to die as a result of a, a, a cardiac arrhythmia, what do we do? We shock the heart. Well, if someone's brain is so dysfunctional that they're convinced they must take their own life and nothing can dissuade them, then yes, sometimes we might also shock the brain and uh, try to alleviate this negative mood state. ECT actually has a higher success rate in treating depression than does medications. Medications on a good day help maybe two-thirds of people who take them, whereas ECT has about a 75 to 85% chance of success in treating depression. <clears throat> now, again, I'm not advocating more widespread use of it. It's really only as a last resort when all else has failed. Uh, but it bears some consideration when it comes to a discussion of, you know, how do you handle a psychiatric emergency, uh, someone is suicidal, and, you know, ideally you're trying to get them to a hospital, but uh, what can be done to get someone out of such a severe mental state quickly and uh, help them on the road to recovery? You know, certainly acts faster than medicines. Uh, we know that medicines take at least two weeks before they start making any changes in how someone feels at all, whereas someone uh, getting ECT can start feeling better in just a few days. Obviously, there are risks involved. Someone getting ECT has to go under general anesthesia, and we all know there are risks associated with that. And there's also a risk of damage to memory. Uh, but again, when it comes to saving someone's life, there are certain risks that are worth taking. Well, it's time for another commercial break. When we come back, a surprising study about personality traits of comedians. That and more when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan 
Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay, with you. We're talking about Robin Williams, his tragic suicide, and warning signs of suicide. Surprisingly, I found a study... It talks about how comedians have very unique personality traits. And according to the researchers who looked at this issue, even have psychotic personality traits. But having an unusual personality structure could be the secret to making other people laugh. The research showed that comedians have surprisingly high levels of psychotic personality traits. The study comes from the British Journal of Psychiatry where researchers analyzed comedians from Australia, Great Britain, and the United States and found they scored significantly higher on four types of psychotic characteristics compared to a control group of people who had non-creative jobs. The traits included a tendency towards impulsive or antisocial behavior and a tendency to avoid intimacy. The creative elements needed to produce humor are strikingly similar to those characterizing the cognitive style of people with psychosis, both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. That, according to the lead author, Gordon Claridge of the University of Oxford, Oxford's uh, Department of Experimental Psychology. Although the traits in question are known as psychotic, they can also represent healthy equivalents of features such as moodiness, social introversion, and the tendency to lateral thinking. Although schizophrenic psychosis itself can be detrimental to humor, in its lesser form, it can increase people's ability to associate odd or unusual things or to think so-called outside the box. Also, manic thinking, which is common in people with bipolar disorder and which 
it can be argued Mr. Williams would show often in his stand-up act may help people combine ideas to form new, original, and humorous connections. For the study, the researchers recruited 523 comedians, 404 men and 119 women, and asked them to complete an online questionnaire designed to measure psychotic traits in healthy people. The traits scored were unusual experiences, such as belief in telepathy and paranormal events, cognitive disorganizations, such as difficulty in focusing thoughts, introvertive anhedonia, which means the reduced ability to feel social and physical pleasure, and impulsive nonconformity, or a tendency toward impulsive antisocial behavior. The same questionnaire was also completed by 364 actors who are also used to performing in front of an audience as a control group, and the comedians and actors' results were compared to each other as well as to a general group of 831 people who had non-creative jobs. The researchers found that comedians scored significantly higher on all four types of psychotic personality traits compared to the general group. Most striking were their high scores for impulsive nonconformity and introverted personality traits. The actors scored higher than the general group on three types, but did not display high levels of introverted personality traits. Well, so let's look at these characteristics again, starting with the one most striking, the impulsive nonconformity tendency towards impulsive antisocial behavior. Rather shocking to think comedians uh, commonly have such traits, but it certainly does account for why comedians are so good for making us laugh in terms of finding associations among things that few other of us would think of, the lateral thinking, the out-of-the-box thinking, um, being able to combine ideas to form new, original, and humorous connections. Perhaps disorganization cognitively and inability to focus one's thoughts helps facilitate making these connections and being impulsive uh, certainly may also facilitate the creative process. Um, regardless, it, uh, it has been talked about Mr. Williams that uh, he was uh, quite unlike his public persona. And uh, so perhaps he had some of these traits and uh, you know, the tendency that comedians have to outwardly be very happy and jocular and joyous and joking, laughing all the time, uh, but inwardly being in 
a great deal of pain emotionally, privately, brings to mind the characterizations of clowns uh, in history and in literature and in theater and opera um, over the decades. Uh, certainly uh, immensely talented and not merely uh, a clown meant to send in at certain moments and make us laugh, but still there is the analogy to that figure that outwardly makes everyone laugh, but inwardly a very sad, very depressed, very tragic figure. Well, <clears throat> I think we'll leave that topic now and move on to other mental health-related news to uh, remind those of you the show is really about anything related to mental health, but not only uh, current events such as that, but interesting new research into the mind and human behavior. And <clears throat> this article has been getting a lot of attention, so I thought I would definitely discuss it with you. Do gut bacteria rule our minds? The ecosystem within us, microbes, uh, are they evolved to sway our food choices? You know, very often we don't make the best food choices. Uh, we eat, we know very well what's good to eat and what isn't good to eat, what will uh, make us gain weight, what's unhealthy for us. Yet we make these unhealthy choices sometimes anyway. So is it possible that the population of gut bacteria that we carry around are influencing these choices? Well, it sounds like science fiction, but it seems that the bacteria within us, which outnumber our own cells about 100-fold, may very well be affecting both our cravings and moods to get us to eat what they want and often are driving us toward obesity. In an article published this week in the journal BioEssays, researchers concluded from a review of the recent scientific literature that microbes influence human eating behavior and dietary choices to favor consumption of the particular nutrients they grow best on, rather than simply passively living off whatever nutrients we choose to send their way. Bacterial species vary in the nutrients they need. Some prefer fat and others sugar, for instance, but they not only vie with each other for food and to retain a niche within their ecosystem or digestive tracts, they also often have different aims than we do when it comes to our own actions. While it is unclear exactly how this occurs, the authors believe this diverse community of microbes, collectively known as the gut microbiome, may influence our decisions by releasing signaling molecules into our gut. Because the gut is linked to the immune system, the endocrine system, and the nervous system, those signals could influence our physical and our behavioral responses. <clears throat> so thinking about this, bacteria within the gut could be considered manipulative. 
there is a diversity of interests represented in the microbiome, some aligned with our own dietary goals and others not. Fortunately, it's a two-way street. We can influence the compatibility of these microscopic single-celled house guests by deliberating and about and altering what we ingest with measurable changes in the microbiome within 24 hours of diet change. Our diets have a huge impact on microbial populations in the gut. It's a whole ecosystem and it's evolving on the time scale of minutes. There are even specialized bacteria that digest seaweed. These bacteria are found in humans in Japan where seaweed is popular in the diet. Research suggests that gut bacteria may be affecting our eating decisions in part by acting through the vagus nerve, which connects 100 million nerve cells from the digestive tract to the base of the brain. Microbes have the capacity to manipulate behavior and mood through altering the neural signals in the vagus nerve, changing taste receptors, producing toxins to make us feel bad, and releasing chemical rewards to make us feel good. In mice, certain strains of bacteria increase anxious behavior. In humans, one clinical trial found that drinking a probiotic containing lactobacillus casei improved mood in those who were feeling the lowest. Now, this is fascinating, and if not puzzling, uh, but we'll finish up our thoughts on this after we take our next commercial break and have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back on the other side of these breaks. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes you can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like certification do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014 Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems? 
Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea. Snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you. However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. And avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. And right now, the topic is how gut bacteria may influence eating behavior. Now, there's further research that's going to test the sway microbes hold over us. For example, would transplantation into the gut of the bacteria requiring a nutrient from seaweed lead the human host to eat more seaweed? The speed with which the microbiome can change may be encouraging to those who seek to improve health by altering microbial populations. This may be accomplished through food and supplement choices, by ingesting specific bacterial species in the form of probiotics, or by killing targeted species with antibiotics. Optimizing the balance of power among bacterial species in our gut might allow us to lead less obese and healthier lives. The authors of the study wrote, because microbiomes are easily manipulatable by prebiotics, probiotics, antibiotics, fecal transplants, and dietary changes, altering our microbiome offers a tractable approach to otherwise intractable problems of obesity and unhealthy eating. Well, we look forward to further progress on this issue, especially it will impact eating behavior in order to influence people not to make poor food choices. And uh, if it could be manipulated that you change the gut microbes, and that in turn alters how those microbes affect the vagus nerve, which... uh, in turn sends signals to the brain about appetite, if we can interfere with that system in a positive way, that would be quite revolutionary. So I look forward to more developments in that research. Now, those of you who have listened to the show before know that uh, whether it's politically popular or not, I'm not in favor of legalization of marijuana because there are too many negative consequences that substance has for the brain. And here is another study uh, that shows the regular marijuana use for, for teens in particular is bad for their brains. 
Frequent marijuana use can have a significant negative effect on the brains of teenagers and young adults, including cognitive decline, poor attention and memory, and decreased IQ. This was discussed by psychologists going over the public health implications of marijuana legalization at the American Psychological Association's 122nd Annual Convention. It needs to be emphasized that regular cannabis use, which is considered once a week, that's regular use, once a week, is not safe and may result in addiction and neurocognitive damage, especially in youth. Marijuana use is increasing among youth. A 2012 study showed that 6.5% of high school seniors reported smoking marijuana daily, up from 2.4% in 1993. Additionally, 31% of young adults, ages 18 to 25, reported using marijuana in the last month. 31%, that's almost a third. People who have become addicted to marijuana can lose an average of six IQ points by adulthood. That according to a 2012 longitudinal study of over a thousand participants who were followed from birth to age 38. Brain imaging studies of regular marijuana users have shown significant changes in their brain structure, particularly among adolescents. Abnormalities in the brain's gray matter, which is associated with intelligence, have been found in 16 to 19-year-olds who increased their marijuana use in the past year. These findings remained even after researchers controlled for major medical conditions, prenatal drug exposure, developmental delays, and learning disabilities. Some legalized forms of marijuana have higher levels of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, this is the major psychoactive chemical in marijuana. <clears throat> Some research has shown that frequent use of high-potency THC can increase the risk of acute and future problems with depression, anxiety, and psychosis. Recent studies suggest that this relationship between marijuana and mental illness may be moderated by how often marijuana is used and the potency of the substance. Unfortunately, much of what we know from earlier research is based on smoking marijuana with much lower doses of THC that are commonly used today. Current treatments for marijuana addiction among adolescents, such as brief school interventions and outpatient counseling, can be helpful but more research is needed to develop more effective strategies and interventions. Also, people's acceptance of legalized marijuana use appears to have an effect on adolescents' perceptions of the drug's risks. A 2013 study of 
over 17,000 teenagers in Montana found marijuana use among teenagers was higher in counties where larger numbers of people voted to legalize medical marijuana in 2004. In addition, teens in counties with more votes for the legalization of medical marijuana perceived marijuana use to be less risky. The research findings suggest that a more accepting attitude toward medical marijuana may have a greater effect on marijuana use among teens than the actual number of medical marijuana licenses available. Now, there's another article I found <clears throat> about risk-taking in teens, and that sort of follows on the heels of uh, adolescents uh, having more favorable attitudes about marijuana smoking, but being uniquely vulnerable to them. According to the Centers for Disease Control, unintentional injuries are the leading cause of death for adolescents, but compared to the two leading causes of death for all Americans, heart disease and cancer, a pattern of questionable decision-making in dire situations comes to light in teen mortality. New research investigating brain differences associated with risk-taking teens found that connections between certain brain regions are amplified in teens more prone to risk. Our brains have an emotional regulation network that exists to govern emotions and influence decision-making. Antisocial or risk-taking behavior may be associated with an imbalance in this network. The study was published June 30th in Psychiatry Research Neuroimaging, and it looked at 36 adolescents ages 12 to 17. 18 risk-taking teens were aged and sex-matched to a group of 18 non-risk-taking teens, and then they screened the participants for risk-taking behaviors, such as drug and alcohol use, sexual promiscuity, and physical violence. And then they underwent functional MRI scans to examine communication between brain regions associated with the emotional regulation network. The risk-taking group showed significantly lower income compared to the non-risk-taking group. Now, most fMRI scans used to be done in conjunction with a particular visual task, that is, visualize doing something and then they scan you and see what areas of your brain light up. But in the past several years, Performing an fMRI scan with just the mind wandering, not in any particular specific state, is just as valuable. In this case, brain regions associated with emotion and reward centers show increased connection even when they're not actively being engaged with a task. The study shows that risk-taking teens exhibit hyperconnectivity between a structure called the amygdala which is a center for, uh, that's responsible for emotional reactivity, and specific areas of the prefrontal cortex associated with emotion regulation and critical thinking skills, in other words, the seat of judgment. The researchers also found increased activity between areas of the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. Now that is the center for reward sensitivity that is often implicated in addiction research. Pretty much anything to do with pleasure or reward, whether it's licit or illicit, stimulates the nucleus accumbens. Now, these findings 
help identify potential brain biomarkers that when taken into context with behavioral differences may help identify which adolescents are at risk for dangerous and pathological behaviors in the future. Even though the risk-taking group did participate in risky behavior, none met clinical criteria for behavioral disorders or substance abuse disorders. By identifying these risk factors early on, the research team hopes to have a better chance of providing effective cognitive strategies to help risk-taking adolescents regulate their emotions and avoid risk-taking behavior and substance abuse. Now, obviously, the practical use of this research is not that you're going to put all teenagers into a functional MRI scanner. Uh, That would be prohibitively expensive and Certainly, there are ethical issues as well as the financial, and not everyone would consent to such a thing. So then what's the point of the research? Well, really, it does give us insights into what is different about the brains of risk-taking teens as opposed to non-risk-taking teens. And this, in turn, uh, may be able to help us have these teens uh, be less prone to take risks Uh, by refining treatment, uh, such as counseling. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.